Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Rates of mental health challenges are soaring among children, adolescents, and their families throughout the pandemic. So today I'm talking about this important issue with two experts in caring for children from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Pediatrician Greg Connors is Professor and Chair of Pediatrics at Upstate, and Child Psychologist Jennifer Rapke is the Chief of the Child Psychiatry Consult Service at Golisano. I welcome both of you back to the Informed Patient Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 24, and I think it's tempting to believe that this can't be happening here in our community. So please tell us what you're seeing. Dr. Connors, what percent of pediatric emergency department visits are for mental health emergencies? Sure, thanks for bringing up that important topic. The um, fact is that suicide is happening among young people, even though we don't wanna always believe it. It is happening among young people in both central New York area and across the country. But much more than that, for every completed suicide, we see a large number of incomplete suicides where, where someone didn't actually die or discussion of suicide gestures or just talk about, I'd like to die or maybe the world would be better off without me. So we see large numbers of children like that. And uh, it, it ends up being about 10% or so of the children who come to our emergency department these days, our pediatric emergency department, are there for mental health related reasons. Um, and it's not just the central New York phenomenon across the country, been large increases in emergency department visits too, uh, especially during the COVID era. During the last couple of years, the number of ED evaluations for suicide attempts in adolescent girls has increased 50%. And uh, Wow. Yeah, and children under 12, even those young kids, 24% in, in emergency department mental health visits during the COVID era. Teens, 31% increase. So we're seeing an increase locally and nationally. And that's huge. And do you attribute it to sort of the stress of all of the pandemic? Dr. Rapke? Uh, we definitely have seen an increase with COVID. However, our community, as well as many communities nationally, we're seeing an increase in numbers before COVID even hit. Actually, prior to, you know, we consider March of 2020 really sort of the beginning of COVID because that's when schools closed. We February was our busiest month in the last three years prior to that. So in the couple months before COVID really shut everything down, we were already seeing a significant increase in kids coming in. Over the last three years, we've had a 400% increase at Upstate in the number of kids presenting with mental health complaints. When you talk to these kids, what are some of the things, I mean, do you see any trends in what they point to? Um, are they able to say this is what's causing stress in my life? During COVID, we definitely saw most of the kids talking about isolation as being a primary factor that was driving their symptoms. Since COVID has kind of morphed over time and the kids are being able to be back in school, we're not hearing as much about isolation as just Everything in their world is changing all of the time. Parents are feeling very stressed and unable to handle things like they normally would be able to. Um, and certainly, you know, academic stress now for those kids that are struggling to get back into the routine of life and, and academics as they were previously. Let me ask you for kids who had sort of a pre existing issue before the pandemic, let's say an eating disorder, has the pandemic 
had an impact on things like that? I think we've seen an increase in eating disorders as well. It's harder to tell if that was already happening prior to COVID or if COVID really put that into overdrive, but we certainly have seen an increase in presentations for eating disorders. Many of those cases used to go to Rochester to Strong Memorial, and now they have so many cases that we're having to hold kids here at Golisano as well for those issues and really trying to manage. Again, you know, one of the primary drivers in eating disorders is a needing a sense of control. And as everybody can imagine, the world feels very out of control for most people the last few years. And so that really um, triggers something like an eating disorder even further. And I'm going to repeat a point that we heard earlier, which is that this is not new during COVID. It certainly increased, but it was already way on the upward trend. Um, in fact, the num it's become that the number two cause of death and children aged 10 to 24 is suicide in the United States. This is something that came on a few years ago. And so, so it was already present and people were already worrying quite a lot about it. And then COVID has just amplified the rate. So it's two phenomena on top of each other. So COVID didn't cause it, but COVID seems to be making it worse. That's right. Can you describe how these children present when they come to the emergency department? Sure. And just for background, I'm a pediatric emergency physician, so that's where I work clinically. And I'm also the chairman of a national committee on pediatric emergencies through the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I sort of have this national perspective too. So um, children, while they present with a variety of ways, all the way from actual suicidal uh, act, taking pills or hurting themselves in some other way, that we see some of that for sure, but that's really not the majority. The majority are people who make some kind of a suicide gesture, perhaps cutting themselves or discussing suicide, or maybe the world would be better off without me, words like that, or some other form of uh, severe anxiety, talking about uh, hurting someone else at school or, or hurting someone in family. So a wide variety of ways that presentations, schools are seeing more and more uh, kids acting out and are getting less and less willing to accept that until the kids go back to class. These days, there's a lot more of what you might call zero tolerance because of concern that this might actually end up resulting in an actual suicide or an aggressive act. So lots of those kids are coming to the emergency department these days. Once they come to the emergency department and are recognized as having mental health issues, we do the same kind of intake that we do on any other patient getting their history and that sort of thing. Physical examination, make sure that, that there aren't multiple things going on or that we're not missing something. And then we're fortunate that we at Upstate are able to turn to a set of mental health colleagues, Dr. Rapke and colleagues are able to come to the emergency department and assess these patients. Then we make a decision about if they need to be admitted to our hospital or to a mental health facility or are able to go home and be connected with a, a counselor or psychologist, something of that nature. In fact, many of them already have those, some of those resources in place, but it hasn't been as effective as it could be, or they're having a, a crisis. So we're, we're often able to reconnect those patients with their previously existing sources of mental health care. So let me ask you a little bit more about that. How do you decide who gets admitted and who is okay to go back home? Yeah, so fortunately we're able to rely on the expert opinion from mental health professionals, psychiatrists, and, and a whole mental health team, including child psychologists and child psychiatrists. And we're really lucky to have Dr. Rapke not only with us today, but able to take care of our patients on a regular basis and really give us advice as emergency physicians. We can recognize certainly some, you know, some of the basics, but it's great to have a, a real in-depth expert 
team as well. And so they help us deciding if patients are okay to go home safe or need extended stay in the hospital. Um, and there are also inpatient mental health specific centers. We have only eight beds here at Upstate, but there are other inpatient mental health facilities for children in the region. And so they can help us place a patient in one of those facilities if they need that, although almost always they're full. And so it's hard to find them a, a room in the end. This is Upstate Medical University's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith. My guests are from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, pediatrician Dr. Greg Connors and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke. So Dr. Rapke, it was challenging for parents to find a good child psychologist or counselor or therapist before COVID. And with the demand for mental health services being so high, what's being done to help kids who need help? Sure, that's a really challenging question and something that as a society and a nation we're struggling with currently. There's a lot of um, advocacy points that are out there of things that are needed that are certainly not enough right now. But one of the things that concretely happened in respective to COVID was telehealth was something that got used much more frequently. So we were able to offer those services more remotely, especially to people that were at a distance. Um, as some people may know, Golisano serves a large region. It's not just the local area. So we serve a lot of counties, some of which could be hours away and not able to physically come to appointments and things. So telehealth expansion was a big thing that happened over the last two years. The other thing that happened was an investment in school-based mental health. So there is money and efforts out there to just like we tried to put that into primary care over the last 10 years, now there's a lot more efforts to put that into school-based mental health care where we can access kids. You know, kids are at their primary care doctor and they're at school generally, and so we can try to meet them where they're at a little better. And so most of the districts in our region are trying to involve mental health care in some way in their district. So that was a big change as well, but it's still unfortunately not enough and a lot more work is needed in that area. Many children have lost parents and sometimes both parents to COVID. What is happening to those children? And in general, what sorts of mental health challenges are these kids facing? So bereavement is a natural course of life for most people. You know, many kids, their first loss is a pet or a grandparent. So it is part of a developmental process that most of us go through to lose, you know, a family member or a loved one. Unfortunately, a loss due to COVID was complicated by a lot of things and, and can lead to complicated bereavement in that, you know, many people weren't able to have memorials or ceremonies or religious practices um, in response to the loss. So it didn't give us these opportunities to grieve in the ways that we normally would. And it also created just an added factor into things. You know, certainly COVID is something that's become politicized and, you know, has social implications. And so that complicates bereavement too. That can cause anger, frustration, and the way that things were handled, or maybe they felt their loved one didn't get the correct medical care that they needed because of strapped resources. So it certainly can breed complicated bereavement. The difficult thing is we have to respect people's bereavement process for what it is. There is data out there that says if we try to give care too soon before the person is ready, it can actually cause worse bereavement for them or cause more symptoms. So we don't wanna make something that's normal abnormal. But it is certainly something we have to keep an eye on and watch a little more closely because a loss due to COVID can cause what's called complicated bereavement or a bereavement that lasts longer or has more mixed feelings or mixed emotions that are caught up in there as well. Children of 
families of color and also families in uh, poverty have been especially hit by losses of parents or caregivers during COVID. And many of them already had decreased access to other kinds of mental health resources. So although the mental health crisis has been across the board, it has especially hit families, uh, including children of, of color. Absolutely. What are some of the reasons for that? Why are youth of color disproportionately affected by this? Yeah, so as Dr. Rapke was saying, we have had increased loss of parents and guardians during the COVID pandemic. Also, uh, as, as a background, there's been less, less resources available, including mental health resources to kids in the school districts and in primary care settings, kind of all across the board uh, available to, to children and families of color. And then also in areas of poverty in central New York has a high uh, poverty rate especially in Syracuse, and often that's associated with decreased mental health resources. But I am going to tell you that the largest provider of primary care to children in the area, pediatric primary care, is here at Upstate, Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. And there we have, I think, especially good resources embedded in primary care for children with mental health needs. So we are helping to address that right here at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. You know, I wanted to ask you also, are you seeing children with physical ailments that are brought on by stress? I know we hear about adults that, you know, ulcers that are brought on by stress. Do you, do you see things like that in kids? I'll start that and, I'll, and Dr. Rafke can amplify, I'm sure. I'll say that as an emergency physician, we'll, we will see children with some of the classic things include, well, you mentioned ulcers, but in children, it tends to be more headaches, stomach aches. And also some unusual kind of rhythmic behaviors that can look like seizures, but seem not to be seizures. And then also we, we see kids will often have cutting behaviors. So fresh cuts or even scars on usually on their forearms, but other places as well. They can tell us that there's mental health issues, stress going on. I'm sure Dr. Rapke sees a lot more. We actually have an entire separate team member that handles that, led up by Dr. Reagan and a team of pediatric psychologists. So the numbers that we were citing about children with mental health complaints don't even include that entire population of kids that comes in with medical complaints, and they're seen by um, Dr. Reagan and her wonderful team of colleagues. So it's a whole separate group of folks that we are seeing as well that's on top of the traditional mental health crises that we're talking about today. And they try to be embedded in every subspecialty at Upstate, so they're involved in the pulmonary clinic for children with pulmonary illness, um, cystic fibrosis. They're embedded in the hematology oncology population where we can see medical symptoms that are, you know, exacerbated by stress. And then all the kids here in the hospital that Dr. Connors just mentioned. So there's a whole another section of kids that aren't even really who we're talking about today that are being served by a whole another team of people. So that if you add all that together, it's even bigger than we're describing. It could be hard to untangle physical ailments and mental health ailments. I think it's well known that they are that there's an interplay back and forth. A great example is children with asthma. They may well have increased problems with their asthma as a result of stress and mental health. It's not to say they don't have asthma, but but they're working together. In this case, against the child. We've been talking mostly about kids from 10 on up. I wonder, does the pandemic have an effect on babies and toddlers? Do you see that they're picking up on tension in the household or, or not? Our service has seen kids as young as three presenting with mental health chief complaints, which 
just sounds really intense. But if you think about, you know, three-year-olds can be in preschool and so they're being seen in those environments and people are noticing something is different, something is unusual. This kid is not functioning in the way that they normally do. We certainly see kids as young as, you know, 12 to 18 months for developmental delays and concerns. And the Center for Special Needs here at Upstate serves some of those kids in recognizing early intervention and early issues. So absolutely, we see changes in as early as newborns, primarily because they are very keen observers of the environment around them. They learn based on their family, their parents, their caregivers, and all of us as adults are stressed as well. And so they absolutely pick up on that. I think we often underestimate how much kids observe and notice about the people around us. We used to call them the little barometers of the family because they sort of let us know what's going on in the family based on their behavior and how they're acting. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient podcast host, Amber Smith, with my guest, Dr. Greg Connors, who's the professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate, and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke, who's the chief of the Child Psychiatry Consult Service at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. We're talking about how the pandemic has affected children and their mental health. So I'd like to talk about some solutions. I know the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association have jointly declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health. Dr. Connors, can you explain what these groups are hoping to accomplish? Sure, and thanks for mentioning that. I think that was a really important statement that these three professional societies kind of highlighted by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the number one a professional group of pediatricians in the United States, that they all got together and, and declared this uh, national state of emergency in ch- children's mental health. I think that's a big deal that I would I would recommend that people take a minute or two to take a look at, easy to find on the internet. Um, I think what, what the, the, the goal of the, this state of emergency was really twofold. Number one was to bring awareness. And I think that although you, you and I and, and Dr. Rapke know that this is going on, there are quite a few people who don't really appreciate the importance and the magnitude of the mental health crisis that we're seeing in children and teens right now. And then also to help to bring resources to help make it right, as you said, solutions. What I think that they're looking for is increase both to access to mental health care and then quality of mental health care. And we can get into specifics, but I think it has to do with working with policymakers mostly to help bring increased financial resources to the mental health community to to help things like treatment and prevention, school and community-based care, community-based mental health programs, and increased workforce mental health, pediatric in particular mental health workforce really needs increased resources there. And then increased hospital beds, clinic beds, that kind of just room for patients to come. It's really, I consider an investment and pediatric mental health, really similar to that and probably more important than the investment that we're making in roads and bridges and that sort of thing, because this is our our future. Dr. Rapke mentioned, I think, telemedicine before, telehealth. Are there regulatory challenges that threaten telehealth or telemedicine that need to be fixed? So we talk about insurance payments and insurance coverage for physician visits. And before the pandemic, the uh, rate at which a treating physician or psychologist was paid was much, much smaller if a visit was made by telemedicine than in person. And so there, there was really an incentive not to do that and to have patients come in. And so very few folks were actually taking advantage much of telemedicine offering or, or being able to get appointments 
uh, through telemedicine. Well, with the pandemic, the recognition that many visits, medical, mental health, all sorts of visits, could be just as efficiently done through telemedicine has led to equal reimbursement, whether it via telemedicine or in person or close to it in many cases. And that's really tied to the state of emergency that's been declared by the government through the pandemic. And it also is slated to go away once the pandemic subsides. And so one of the requests from this state of emergency in children's mental health is to continue the availability at full payment of telemedicine for mental health visits for children and teens. So they don't necessarily need to travel a long way to, be, to get connected with their therapist. It helps to remove some of the barriers to mental health treatment. I wonder, kids being, you know, digital natives, they're so good on their phones and electronic devices. Are they responding very well to the option for telemedicine for mental health visits at least? I think like most everything, it's one way or the other. So there's half of the kids that really prefer that. They benefit from it. They don't feel as comfortable coming in, especially kids that have really high anxiety or, you know, are even struggling to get out of the house because of their mental health challenges. This offers them a window and a way to do that that's more comfortable to them. And for families that are struggling to get their kids to come to an appointment, you know, this is maybe a better platform. There's another group of kids that have said, I absolutely hate telemedicine. It's awkward. It's weird. I don't like it. I, I don't feel as connected to the person. You know, I, I don't even want to do it anymore unless I can come back in the office. So it's sort of equally <laughs> um, depending on the kid's personality and depending on the challenges that they're facing. So, And by the way, that's not just limited to mental health. We're seeing similar pros and cons uh, and all kinds of uh, chronic illnesses for check-ins and stuff. It's great check in with somebody in six months, see how their kidney or liver disease is doing, for example. Uh, telemedicine is really a benefit for those kind of visits. You're listening to the Informed Patient Podcast from Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Greg Connors and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke about the impact the pandemic has had on children. Dr. Rapke, uh, do schools in central New York communities offer school-based mental health care? So we have quite a few districts in the local area and each one of them is in sort of a different phase of development. Some of them are fully integrated and every one of their schools is offering school-based mental health of some kind. Other schools are a little bit earlier on in their development and their process, and they do that a little differently. You know, we have schools of all sizes, shapes, and colors going on right now, and so everyone has to kind of apply it in the way that makes sense for their district and the way that is feasible for their district. And like we talked about earlier, there just aren't necessarily enough providers to go around. And so trying to find people to come into those settings and come into them at the frequency that it that's needed is a little bit challenging at the moment, but I think all of them are trying to address it in some way, shape or form. And the county and the state have offered, you know, some reimbursement opportunities for folks that are trying to offer that. Dr. Connors, what role do the professional organizations see community pediatricians playing in making sure that kids get the mental health care that they need? Primary care pediatricians like those in the community are really well trained to do physical exams, give immunizations and talk about those with families, check on developmental stages, safety counseling, all sorts of things in a limited period of time so that they can move on to the next checkup. And adding in mental health screening is really important, but it's difficult time-wise. And many of the pediatricians aren't really as well-trained because it hasn't traditionally been part of pediatric training, although that's changing, you know, to, you know, to do that kind of mental health screening. So. The American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups 
are calling for increased reimbursement, increased training, and maybe embedding of mental health resources right in with, with primary care pediatric settings. And we're fortunate to have that ability to do it upstate, but certainly we could do more in the primary care setting. And then also helping people identify good sources of referral for patients who are screened and found to be in need of additional mental health care. So helping people connect up with resources for which to refer their kids. Thinking long-term, I'd like to talk about what the pandemic is doing to normal child development. Dr. Rabke, you mentioned a lot of um, the kids mentioned isolation. Has that had a, a lasting impact? I think it's a little early to say confidently what it's going to do. You know, there's data and studies just starting to come out about the effects that we are seeing. Um, there's some concern about Interestingly enough, even with masks up, are kids understanding emotional reactions appropriately? Or are they understanding, you know, social cues in the same way? Um, you know, because if half of our face is, is missing, basically, do they understand and interpret things in the same way that they would? There is some concern about delays in social skills and, and social mannerisms that kids are not understanding or lagging in a little bit because they haven't been in schools, you know, or they haven't been around social situations as much. So there's certainly some early concern about some of those issues, but I don't know that we completely understand yet the effect that it might have long-term and, and will those things last now that they're back in their typical school or for the most part, or will they kind of bounce back pretty quickly? Kids are extremely resilient, wonderful creatures. And so um, we don't know if that's sort of a temporary effect right now that we're seeing or if it's something that will remain. Yeah, I was wondering uh, the anxiety, the depression that so many kids are dealing with these days the the pandemic has made worse do you think it will automatically subside once this crisis ends i don't think anything in medicine or psychology automatically does <laughs> um sorry to say our field of psychology is a field of it depends you know and we it really depends on a lot of factors in their world are the people around them recovering in a healthy appropriate way are the resources around them back to where they were or back to a new normal that's good are they surrounded by good healthy influences or have they really gotten off track during those couple years of, of difference we also don't know what the pandemic has in store for all of us you know there's some warning signs right now of rising rates and, and rising concerns again about new variants. And so we don't know if things are going to head in a positive, healthy direction, or if we're going to be struggling with this for a while. So it's hard to say, honestly, uh, about what to expect. Our hope is that, it, particularly with school, I think that was something that I harped on quite a bit in you know, the conversations I had through COVID was getting the kids back in school because that is a huge sense of normalcy for them and a huge part of their life and their world. So my hope is that with that, mostly back for them and mostly heading back to a baseline that that will be a positive thing, but I don't know. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, Dr. Connors, how do you think this generation will be shaped by COVID? Well, Dr. Rapp, you just mentioned some of the uh, concerns, at least that are um, on the table or potential concerns for the future about developmental growth and, and especially in young children. And so we have concerns about that there will be long-term mental health effects but I also want to look at some positives. I think that there's nothing but good in, in appreciating and letting people know in a more general way that there are mental health concerns in children and in teens. You open by saying something like, uh, we don't like to think about it, and maybe we don't like to think about it, but we need to. And I mentioned the uh, considering mental health 
uh, expenditures as investments in our future. And I think that the recognition that this is important. Remember that this was so prevalent even before COVID that if some kind of good can come out of this by, by investing more in mental health of children, maybe we'll end up with stronger and resilient adults as a, as a result. Well, I want to thank you both for making time to discuss this important topic. My guests have been Dr. Greg Connors, who's professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate, and Jennifer Rapke, who's a child psychologist at Upstate and the chief of the child psychiatry consult service at Golisano. Both of them see patients at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.